So I want you to think about the last time you took the easy way out of anything. Some of you are like, I never take the easy way out of anything. Well, you sin, so you take the easy way out of something. You probably don't have to think very long about the last time you took the easy way out. As a kid, and if you're me, you still do this, you thought about the easiest way to clean your room. You stuff everything into your closet, and then you show your mom and your dad. is like, see, I'm done. I still do that with my wife, so it's not really as a kid. As a teenager, especially equipped with the internet now, your parents are like, I didn't do this. You can look up summaries of books for reports. There's an app that literally does your math homework for you. I know of it. If you've used it, I know it. Homework help that essentially does your homework for you. And so much more. As an adult, you've got access to apps for food. You can click a little button and it sends you food. You don't have to walk over to your light switch and turn off the lights. You can tell Alexa, hey, turn off my light. I hope there's no Alexa in here. And turn off the lights. I didn't think about that. You can go on Netflix and binge watch TV instead of playing with your kids, instead of going outside. And the list goes on. I'm sure you can think of many, many, many more things that makes life easier, makes your life easier. I'm not calling those things bad. But all I am saying is quick fixes kind of today, and I'm sure it's been the case for a while, it's always been kind of the name of the, name of the game. That's what we've been looking for. It's kind of what society is like. It's we're progressing towards easiness, progressing towards ease. You can think of five, seven, 12 steps, whatever it is, to fix basically anything in 30 minutes. There's something for everybody. There's something for everything. You turn to John 6, Jesus feeding the 5,000, which is not including women and children, probably the most conservative estimate, there's probably 25,000 people there. Because they only count the patriarchs. They don't count women and children. There's a lot of people here. And the offer of kingship from the people, if you notice that at the last verse, verse 15, it's the same thing that Satan offers Jesus in the temptation. Hey, I'll make you king. I'll give you all the glory. I'll give you all the dominion. You don't have to go to the cross. I'll make it easy on you. And he doesn't take it. It's a chance for judgments. We saw in verse 4 and 5, the Passover. It's a pass for judgments to pass over Jesus. They're telling him, you don't have to go through this. You can skate on easy by. And he goes a long and arduous route of taking on your my sin because you will not stop taking the easy route, whether it be sin, whether it be anything else. You will continually take it. I will continually take the easy routes. But Jesus doesn't. He obeys the law and takes the cross, not the people, as his coronation. The cross is his coronation. The cross is his kingship. He fulfills the Passover, not by passing over it, but by saying, I'm the Passover. I'm going to take it on myself giving you the fullness of, his, of himself in return. We're going to see some of these themes. And Jesus showed himself, remember in chapter 5 from last week, that he's Lord of the Sabbath. He worked on the Sabbath. He's providing, he's providentially controlling all things on the Sabbath. 
bring us Trinitarian rest for both you and I to enter into. You get that. That's because he's Lord of it. Showing us that Moses wrote at him at the end of chapter 5. And John continues this mosaic theme in John 6. Bringing the Passover feast. If you, again, if you parallel John 6 with the Passover, it's, it's word for word the same thing. And this is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, festival in the Jewish calendar. Maybe besides Day of Atonement, but it's not really a seven-day party. It's the culmination of their party. And we're going to see this in three points. First is preparing for the Passover, verses 1 through 4. Jesus enters into the feast of the Passover, <coughs> recalling the Lord's deliverance of his people from Egypt. Second is Lord of the Passover, verses 5 through 13. Like Jesus' words in John 5, he takes on Yahweh's role. When he blesses the bread, that is only Yahweh's the deal. He takes his role in the feast. And third and lastly, the king who wasn't passed over. Verses 14 to 15. He's offered kingship by the people, and he declines for the coronation of the cross. And so we're going to see this, and I hope this comes clear throughout. Jesus was not passed over so that you might pass through him. We're going to begin with verse 1. For point 1, preparing the Passover. We're preparing for the Passover. So look at verse 1 with me. Jesus crosses to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. You're like, oh, that's great. He just went over the sea. But where is the Sea of Galilee? And what does it connect? He's coming from Jerusalem in chapter 5, or at least that's where John writes about him last. No scholars are terribly sure when this takes place. John's gospel is not really chronological. It's more thematic. And this is a sea near his hometown where he was in chapter 4. So he goes to Jerusalem, and then back to Galilee, healing the royal official's son in chapter 4. And so a crowd gathers around him and was following him in verse 2. And John doesn't just profile events. Again, we've talked about this before. He doesn't just write down things we just kind of glaze our eyes over. It's like, oh, that's nice. He went over to Galilee. Oh, that's nice. This is Passover. But he is not unaffected by the story, unaware of everything that happened previously. So it's history, but it's like more than history. It's, it's bigger than history. Especially so when you see the beginning of chapter 6, and it's sometimes unfortunate that we have chapter breaks in our Bibles. We forget that these things are connected. They're a single story. Because how does the end of chapter 5 end? It ends with Moses. Moses wrote about me. That's the end of chapter 5. What else did Moses do? Someone crossing a sea with a mediator between God and man with a large crowd gathering around him. Kind of sounds like Moses. End of chapter 5, and now we get the same kind of allusions, the imagery in chapter 6. And this is really, really steeped in the Old Testament history. This is, again, John doesn't really tell you, hey, I'm telling you this. He just shows you. doesn't tell you, he shows you. Like I said, chapter brace, they can be unfortunate because they don't, they don't really command, they don't kind of allow you. Your eyes look at five, like, oh, it's disconnected from six. But this is one single story. 
And so they would have read about Moses at the end of chapter 5 and the crossing of the sea in chapter 6. Like, oh, that's, that's what Moses did. Jesus is kind of like a new Moses. John is connecting Moses from chapter 5, verses 46 to 47, because Moses wrote about Jesus, and Jesus says this straight up. He's like, Moses wrote about me. If you don't know that, that's what he did. Which is now crossing the sea with a group of people. And narratives can be kind of funny because they don't tell you. They're not like principles. They're kind of things to live by. It's, it's showing you stuff. And John is showing you the similarity without telling you that Jesus is the new Moses. And the end of verse 2 helps. If you look at the end of verse 2, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. You have two other events that this might refer to. As John tells you what he does. This is the royal official son in chapter 4, because the royal official son is sick. And the sick man in the pool, Bethesda, or Bethesda, in John 5. Those are the two times he tells you that somebody's sick, and he heals them. So, like, they, they saw that. They heard about that. As well as ten signs that Yahweh performs through the agency of Moses in Egypt. Those are called signs and wonders. To Pharaoh, say, I'm Yahweh, worship me, serve me, let my people go. And in both instances, Jesus is showing forth his majesty in the eye or in the view of all around and say, I'm Yahweh in the flesh. I did that. I broke them free. I healed him. And the people begin to notice. And the connection strengthens in verse 3. He goes to a mountain. What's that kind of remind you of? This is Sinai. Goes to a mountain and sits with the disciples after leading the people through the other side of the sea. Again, he doesn't tell you he's Moses, but he shows you he's doing Moses things. Because that's exactly what Moses does from Exodus 4 to 19. He is called by God to lead, to lead the Israelites out from the heavy hand of Pharaoh and slavery in Egypt by great signs and wonders through the Red Sea to the foot of Mount Sinai which is exactly what Jesus does being in John 6. When Moses goes to the mount, who does he bring with him? He's got 70 elders. He's got Aaron, he's got Joshua at the foot of the mountain. They don't go up to the top of the mountain. Only Moses does. That's what Jesus is doing here. But now he brings his disciples with him up to the top of the mountain, or probably hill. And it gets even thicker in verse 4. Because what events commemorates the Exodus? Only one event. That's the Passover. That's what they remind themselves. This is what Jesus did. This is what God did, or Jesus. This is what they did to lead us out. But now who are these people with instead of Moses? Who then institutes, by the mouth of Yahweh, the sacrifice. What do they sacrifice on Passover? They sacrifice a lamb. A year old, pure lamb. What is Jesus called in John 1 and 2? The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So you can start seeing all these illusions start connecting up. They don't have Moses with them. They have the lamb with them. They have the sacrifice with them. And Jesus doesn't participate because this is not actually the feast of the Passover. This is the time of Passover 
But they're not in the temple celebrating Passover. They're kind of doing their own thing. Because he's about to fulfill the Passover. He's about to fulfill as the Lord who instituted. Not just the guy who crowds everybody up, sacrifices. Like, I'm the guy who instituted this. I'm the lamb of the Passover. This brings us to point two, Lord of the Passover. Moses, when he leads the Israelites out and who had journeyed through the wilderness with him, if you were here 40 years in the wilderness, like the Israelites, you would be delirious, cranky, and wondering, where on earth are we going? I asked that 30 minutes in the car. If I'm hungry, you're probably not dissimilar. We look at the Israelites, like, how could they possibly be grumbling with the Lord's presence? If you were 40 years and hungry, you would do the same exact thing. And Jesus looks upon this massive crowd he's got with them. But there's no instance in John, he's a slightly different from the other three Gospels. He doesn't talk about the grumbling. The other three Gospels do talk about the grumbling. And this is one of very few miracles that all four Gospels have. So it's got to be pretty, pretty big for all four Gospels to have this. And they speak the other three So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they speak of Jesus who had compassion in his heart for those who were sheep without a shepherd. John doesn't say that. It's because he's probably assuming you know. Because John is the last gospel written, probably. He's assumed you've already read the three gospels. It's not a difference in the gospels, not a contradiction. He just assumes you've read it. He says, oh, you've read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I don't have to tell you. I could just kind of give you highlights of this. And John doesn't forget this. He likely assumes, like, you've read this. And unprompted by any want or need, because he's really trying to push that to the fore. The people aren't grumbling. They might have been, but John doesn't describe it. So this really just comes out of Jesus' desire to feed. He doesn't look on, really, it's, it's strange. He doesn't look on need and feed. He just feeds he just gives. Because there's no fast food joint. You can't like drive by McDonald's and get a burger. There's nothing in the wilderness. They can't get anything. No one's selling food on the road. So these people are really hungry. They don't tell Jesus. He just knows. He just feeds. And Jesus asks a question he knows the answers to, as you'll see in verse 6. But this imagery is, is striking. I want you to think about this. Because all of you, like Israel, you look to Jesus for food, whether that be spiritual food or that it, like actually be food. You look upon Jesus for all your daily needs, and the way Jesus, upon, Jesus is looking upon those who are looking at him is exactly how he looks at you. It's not just back then how he looked at them, and he's now up in heaven doing his own thing, waiting for you. He looks at you exactly the same way that he looks at the Israelites. He looks at you, he sees your need, he sees your wants, sees your desires, and he's like, I can fill that. I have filled that. I will fill that. He sees you in your desperate need, not just in your need. He sees you desperately hungry, he sees you sick, he sees you in want, and he sees you in desire. And he's not prompted by that per se, He just wants to feed you. 
And it's because he loves you. And like Deuteronomy 7 says, he doesn't love you because you have something in yourself that says, I want to love Jesus. I want to serve Jesus. No, he loves you because he loves you. He wants to feed you because he wants to feed you. He's not like kind of built up in something to say, like, oh, now they need this. He's not, I, like, I just want to do this. I just want to give to you. The Lord God incarnate, Jesus Christ, looks upon you as he looked upon these people. It's not different. He didn't change. Looks upon you exactly the same way. He's not frustrated that you can't provide for yourself, that you forgot food. Like, oh, shoot, like, I forgot my lunch pail. Jesus doesn't look at you as like, you forgot your lunch pail again? Can't feed yourself again? He feeds you with himself. And like the question he asked Adam and Eve in the garden, he says, who told you you were naked? It's not as if Yahweh doesn't know. It's not as if he needs the answers. Like, okay, now I know why. It's the same thing he asked, effectively he asked Philip in verse 6. He doesn't need to know. He's testing them. He's testing Philip. Do you know who I am? By asking the question, do you know I already know this? Because Philip should have said, like, I, I, I know what you're going to do. But he has no idea. By asking, he wants to see if Philip will recognize who is talking, who will recognize who is asking. Because Jesus knew what he would do, almost as if by asking this question, he's exhausting human options. By him asking Philip, do we have any food? He's like, not really. By him answering is them recognizing, I can't do this. I can't bring it. And he might magnify Jesus' glory. So Philip misses it. And the answer is that they have enough money, 200 denarii is about eight months of salary for a laborer, to feed, again, probably 200 people. That's, that's probably the best estimate. 200 denarii feeds 200 people. But nothing near what they need to feed 5,000 men, not including probably 20,000 women and children. A lot of mouths to feed. Andrew pipes up in verses 8 to 9 with kind of an odd comment if you think about it. It's odd for two reasons. First, it seems the boy is the only one who brought food. This little tiny boy. Everybody else forgot besides this one guy. Little boy. He's, he's under 12. That's the Greek word used. Is somebody who's really young. And second... What the boy has is less than what 200 denarii buys. And they bring him up. It's like, oh, he has seven, five pieces of bread. But like, I have enough money to buy 200 pieces of bread. And you're looking at this little kid who has five pieces of bread. Eight months income isn't a little bit of money. You, you know that. that that's going to buy you a really nice dinner for a lot of people. If you saved up, you would buy that. But instead, they look at this little kid. It's like, five pieces of bread? Yeah, let's do that. Let's take what this little kid has and, and not our 200 denarii. It's like, yep, we'll take that. That makes sense. Again, Jesus takes this. He always takes the, the, the lesser option to magnify his glory. doesn't take the stuff that looks like he can provide for more. He takes his. He takes the little things. says, I, I, I want to work through this. I want to show forth my glory through this. Like Moses does in Exodus with the people who are grumbling because they are starving, 
and you would too. So don't think Israel's kind of off on their own thing. You would be grumbling. I would be grumbling. I, like I said, I grumble after two hours of not eating. They've been in there for who knows how long. Jesus has them sit down that they might receive their feast in verse 10. <clears throat> Moses prays to Yahweh that he might bring food to the people who are grumbling against both Moses and Yahweh. This is Exodus 16 and 17. And so Yahweh promises to rain manna, essentially the little sweet wafers, down from the heavens for the people to gather. So Jesus has those around him, again, about 5,000 men, plus many more women and children, sits in the grassy area. Now that's kind of interesting. Moses had the Israelites sit where? They're not in the promised land. They're in the deep and dark wilderness. There is no grass. There's no milk flowing. They're not in a lush area because they're in the wilderness. Because the Israelites specifically aren't in the promised land yet. They've got a while to wait before they step foot in the land flowing with milk and honey, grassy fields, rolling hills. They're not there. They're receiving their meal there because they're looking for the place they're coming to. But here Jesus, a new and better Moses, has his people sitting in the lush greenery with the Lord God incarnate because Jesus is the promised land. Not this place, but Jesus is the promised land. And he's so much more than the promised land. If you look at verse 11, when you read or hear what Jesus does in verse 11, <coughs> mainly, Jesus then took the loaves and when he had given thanks, you probably don't picture something that different than giving thanks before the dinner table or giving thanks at the end of the day. That's, that's probably your mental picture right now. But that's not different than what I do. It is very different than what you do. That's, that's, that's not what's happening here. Because this, verse 11, is, is the thickest allusion to the Passover meal of all 15 verses. You don't have to go back there, but Exodus 23 talks about this. You get the record of how they are to celebrate this feast, specifically the Passover feast, along with the Feast of Harvest, which is the first fruits, and the Feast of Ingathering, which is the booths. Right after this, though, that's the beginning of Exodus 23, right in the heart of Exodus 23, verses 20 to 33, Yahweh promises the land of Canaan, which is the promised land, to those who participate in this feast, because they're in the wilderness looking towards the promised land. And right in the middle, verse 25 of Exodus 23, is where you read, you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water and will take sickness away from you. Which is precisely what Jesus does in John 6. And in John 4 to 5, he heals the sick and then blesses the bread in John 6. Jesus blessing the bread is him saying, I am the Lord your God, I am the Passover. I instituted it, and I am it. I have brought, not I'm bringing or it's coming forth, I have brought new creation. Speaking is shadowing forth, but it's actually here. 
You can see it. And notice, too, how much was given to the people. Do you know how much is given to the people in Exodus? Not enough. You get one day's. If you have any more than one day, or if it's, Saturday, if it's a Friday, you can also grab Saturdays. You get just enough to eat, and anything left over is gross or burned. And it's a specific commandment by Yahweh that says, you can't take any more than what I've given you. How much could the people take with them when the Passover was first instituted? Only enough for the day, and nothing more. Which bleeds in the verses 12 to 13. Everyone has their fill. And notice what it says. As much as they wanted. Not just enough. Or not enough for tomorrow. They, they filled themselves to the brim. But it goes even further than that. He says, gather up the leftover fragments. Which is what they couldn't do in Exodus. What they can't do in the Passover. You can't gather up the leftovers. You have to leave that outside so that it can go bad and eventually disintegrates. In the first Passover, their leftovers would go rotten. Not to mention it was a violation of God's law, his specific commandments to not take anything else. But the Passover which Jesus fulfills, he gives them as much as they want and even more to fill 12 baskets full. More than they can possibly have. This bread does not go bad. It spills over. There's nothing about it going bad. They, just, they, have, they have so much more that they can't eat, they put it in baskets. And it's not a violation. An abundance that neither you nor I could possibly contain. It's like what Jesus said in John 5, verses 46 to 47, right before this. When Moses is writing about the Passover, not to mention ministering and mediating during it, he was writing and looking forward to Jesus. That's what the Passover is meant to point to us to. Because the Passover that Jesus oversees is the abundance to those who are in the wilderness, to you, as your promise that I am your abundance. I'm more than you could possibly handle in the wilderness whether you could possibly contain in the wilderness what we long for. And they fill 12 baskets full, which if you know how many tribes there are in Israel, is a rather significant number. These 12 baskets full is John alluding to the 12 tribes of Israel present at the first Passover. He's like, you are the new Israel. You are the fulfilled Israel. It's like John showing you, he's not telling you, but he's showing you, this is the new Israel. What I'm instituting is the new Israel, fulfilled in Jesus. Not different, but fulfilled. You who partake of Christ are partaking the same Christ that those in the wilderness did. Because you are in the wilderness. That's what Peter says, you are exiles in this land. But now it overflows. And this links us to the bread of life discourse that ends John 6 when he says, I am the bread. And it sandwiches his walking on water. Jesus, one with Yahweh, comes to fulfill the Passover feast 
And it ends with a temptation that people notice, which ends our passage. One well, point three, the king who wasn't passed over. We'll conclude with verses 14 to 15. <coughs> the people see the sign not dissimilar from what Moses had shown in the wilderness. The sign of manna coming from heaven, feeding them supernaturally. He takes the bread, multiplies it supernaturally. Now the fourth sign Jesus has performed in this gospel. And they recognize the prophet. They're actually dead on in John 6, 14. They're not wrong. They're dead on. Usually when they talk about prophet, it's like one office of Christ. And what about the priest and kingship? They're dead on in John 6, 14. Because they're thinking of Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18, 15 reads, The Lord your God will raise out for you a prophet like me, Moses is speaking, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. They recognize him. Oh, you're that guy. You're the prophet I was told about. So those who experienced and tasted this sign from Jesus recognize the prophet in the line of Moses. That's the guy. That's Messiah. The sign they clearly link with Moses in the Passover. Because what do they link this sign with? They link it with Moses. They link it with the prophet after Moses. They get it exactly right. But right after, they get it exactly wrong. By tempting him with kingship. They want so badly, and I'm sure you're in the same boat. I'm in the same boat too. You want so badly for Jesus to take rightful kingship. You want him to take over Rome, think of any government, and establish the dominance of the Jewish sacrificial and ceremonial system over everyone. The oppression, and and it makes sense. And you feel this too. I feel this. They felt this. Because they've been oppressed by Rome for probably 200 years up until this point. They have visions of grandeur, and they see this prophet like, that's our guy. Finally going to do it. They wanted so badly to make him king. Jesus perceives this, and he doesn't take it. Their visions of grandeur and a king to take down their oppressors is not what Jesus came to do. Because that's exactly how the Israelites and Egypt felt. And I'm assuming that's probably how you feel. But the Passover was membered by blood on the doorposts, that which the Spirit of God would hover over and pass by. The blood of your old lamb without impurity, pure your old, smeared over the doorposts as a substitute. Something had to die to pass over. It was not just a get-out-of-jail-free card. Something had to die to be passed over. And it had to substitute for you, or you would die. Jesus comes and fulfills the Passover as the Lord of the Passover, as the substitutes, but he doesn't christen it with kingship. Because that would be the easy way out. It's like Satan in Luke 4, in Matthew 4, in Mark. It's like Satan offering dominion and glory over the world without the cross. Hey, Jesus, you're the guy. 
Here's the kingship. Don't you want to take it? Suffering sounds pretty bad. I don't think you really want to do that, do you? Because Jesus, the pure lamb who has come to take the sin of the world, the sins of those whom he came into the world to die and rise for, knows he can't be given kingship. He has to suffer and earn it. Because Jesus doesn't put blood on his doorpost. He doesn't take a lamb's blood and spray it across his doorpost and say, God, please pass over me. Because that's what taking kingship would have done for him. He says no to the easy way out. You have never said no to the easy way out. He says yes to the cross because instead of the people lifting him up and saying, you're our king, he looks at the cross as him being lifted up and being our king. Because this king, this Lord, suffers on behalf of both you and I who confess his name. He was not passed over. He was offered with it, he was tempted with it, and he was not passed over. The Lord of the Passover, who could have not gone through this, that you, by confessing his name, you don't get a get-out-of-jail-free get card. It's not just like you can get passed over with nothing else. It's you pass through him because he was not passed over. He suffers your sins condemnation under the law, which is what the Passover is all about. Do you have the blood on your doorpost or not? Do you have a substitute for yourself or not? Because something's got to die for your sins. Something's got to be reckoned. What the Passover so clearly portrays, because you get to be lifted up. Not just he's just lifted up on his own. He brings you with him in his kingship to be lifted up in him. You would not be lifted up if he took that offer. He'd be on his own. You would have no heaven. And you celebrate this with the Lord's Supper. That's, that's the imagery. This is the, this is the motivation behind the Lord's Supper. What Jesus institutes at the end of the gospel. He blesses the bread and cup as your substitute, saying, my blood is on your doorpost. I had to take the coronation of the cross, not the people's cross, not your cross, not my cross, not what we think it is, but what he does. And you get to take on his blood the Lord of the Passover's blood, you take his blood as your substitute because he took yours. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and glorify you that is the Lord of the Passover who both instituted it and suffered, crucified, died, and was raised as a lamb of the Passover that you did not take what we so often take, the temptation for glory, the temptation to get a shortcut to glory. Lord, you took the long way to glory. You took the suffering road to glory. You bore our sins on the cross, christened as king, and take us with you as you were raised. What the Passover so clearly alludes to, you fulfilled in yourself and you bring us with you. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. All this in your son's name. Amen.